welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law and the Robert M. Zinman Resident Scholar for the spring of 2017. Today we will be talking about municipal insolvency with Professor Samir Parikh and Mr. Mark Levinson. Professor Parikh is an associate professor at the Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland. He has two important publications on this topic with his most recent paper reporting the results of an important, original, empirical study on municipal bond offerings. That paper, Failing Cities and the Red Queen Phenomenon, will be published very soon by the Boston College Law Review. Mark Levinson is senior counsel in Oryx Restructuring Group. He is one of the leading lawyers in the country on municipal bankruptcy, having served as lead counsel to the California cities of Stockton and Vallejo. Thank you both for joining us today. Samir, to get us started, can you give us a quick overview of your study and the results you report in your Red Queen paper? Absolutely, and, and thank you, Drew, for, for having me on. Um, so this paper was sort of a response to criticism I received to uh, another paper I'd written. So very quickly, in, in 2015, I published an article or a paper for, called uh, New Fulcrum Points for City Survival. And in that paper, I argue that uh, Chapter 9 is somewhat effective in helping truly distressed cities like Detroit. Uh, but for cities and counties at an earlier stage of deterioration, oftentimes Chapter 9 is just not optimal. So I had uh, proposed um, a debt restructuring mechanism at the state law level. And, and not to go into too much detail, but basically the, what I was proposing was a system where states could monitor their cities and counties, flag distressed you know, municipalities, shepherd them into this dynamic negotiation model that I had suggested, um, and ultimately, if they were unsuccessful in that negotiation model, they would have an option to file for federal bankruptcy. And the real, um, I think, uh, point of all this process was to try to get concessions from stakeholders, uh, because sometimes the negotiations are just not as um, robust as we would like. I also offered a different perspective on the contract clause. Well, once this article was published, um, I received a lot of pushback from city officials who argued that basically if they had if they implemented this type of debt restructuring mechanism at the state law level, that their borrowing costs would explode. That was the argument, that basically by offering um, sort of debt adjustment options to the municipalities, the credit markets would punish those borrowers. And this is basically the uh, paralysis justification. And um, it it rang hollow to me. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense, and uh, there wasn't any empirical research on the subject. So I partnered with uh, Zhao Chen He, who's an economist in Virginia, and we decided to conduct some empirical research. So um, we accessed the Bloomberg Municipal Terminal. And I'm going to say this slowly because this is um, a very good description of our data set. But basically, we aggregated data uh, for every fixed rate general obligation municipal bond issued in the country from January 1st of 2004 to December 31st of 2014. So that's over 800,000 issuances. So that's a very, naturally, very rich and and deep data set. And what we basically try to do is we try to organize states um, based on the type of debt restructuring options they offered their municipalities. So there's a spectrum, right? So some states say, hey, there's nothing available to you at the state law level, and you aren't allowed to file for Chapter 9. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's states that provide something at the state law level and some sort of conditional access to Chapter 9. So what we basically did is we put every single state in one of three baskets on this spectrum. 
And then what we did is we um, analyzed the effect that debt restructuring options have on the borrowing costs of municipalities in those states. So we introduced a lot of variables. We used a multivari multivariate regression analysis to isolate that phenomenon. And what we determined was that um, municipalities that had more robust debt restructuring options, they had the lowest borrowing costs. So once again, if you have some options at the state level or access to Chapter 9, we found that the, the borrowing costs for those municipalities were actually the lowest. And for municipalities that had no real means to restructure their debt, they had the higher borrowing costs. So that may seem sort of counterintuitive to many, but not to a restructuring attorney, right? Because the idea is that credit markets crave certainty. And to the extent you can establish some sort of uh, restructuring mechanism for municipalities that are distressed, the credit markets will reward you. And that's basically um, the conclusion we reached. Um, and it led to a very practical bottom line. Uh, uh, the bottom line was that if you're a state and you're struggling, don't rely on the paralysis justification and do nothing go out and put together some sort of mechanism at the state law level or at least provide your municipalities a path to get into Chapter 9 because ultimately that is not going to increase your borrowing costs. In fact, it may bring them down. So that was the real conclusion uh, from the paper and our research. So in other words, what your critics had, had argued, which was that your proposal would increase the, the cost of borrowing, you found the exact opposite in your study. Exactly. And in, and in talking to financial restructuring experts, they were not surprised at all. They're like, well, isn't that obvious? But once again, talking to policymakers outside of the bankruptcy context, they just had a certain impression. And it's, you know, it, our efforts are trying to dispel those notions to, you know, give these municipalities um, some options. So, Mark, as one of these leading restructuring experts, did you find these results to be somewhat self-evident as Samir describes them? I'll take a step back and say, as a restructuring expert, not necessarily a Chapter 9 municipal restructuring expert, you know, think about what it's like in the Chapter 11 world in the private sector, where every company is subject to Chapter 11, and therefore the markets have to deal with every company with the threat of Chapter 11, and somehow the American economy has gone on and companies are able to obtain financing. And it seems to me, and maybe I have a debtor orientation, but that if I'm the capital markets and I realize that the problem that my potential borrower or my borrower faces are pension issues and labor issues, and there's no recourse through bankruptcy, I'm going to be more weary about making a loan to that company, to that city, than I would be if I knew that it had an option to fix it. And look what happened in, in Vallejo, which was a case driven by the city's inability to reach a deal with its labor unions. It never had a problem with its capital market creditor, which was Union Bank, the letter of credit provider. Its problem was with its unions because it had contracts that the, the city simply couldn't pay, and it had OPEB that the city simply couldn't pay. That's why it filed Chapter 9, through Chapter 9, and it was able to solve the labor issues uh, after it went through a battle and rejected collective bargaining agreements. In Stockton, one of the big benefits of Chapter 9 was the termination of over $450 million, $550 million of OPEP that the city just shed completely through the bankruptcy case. Again, assisting the capital markets because it enabled the city to, to pay more on its capital market debt than it would have otherwise if it had to face another $500 million of OPEP over the next 30 years. 
So again, to me, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but I, I've given enough talks, including to securities groups, where it's just easy to say, you file a bankruptcy, we're going to punish you. Again, that hasn't been the experience in Chapter 11. People say, the capital markets say, let me look at your balance sheet after bankruptcy. And if it looks healthier to me, I'll loan to you, because now you're not a risk. One final statement. In cities like Vallejo and Stockton, who tried to avoid bankruptcy but simply couldn't, would have no access to the capital markets. No one in their right mind would have loaned those cities money as they were teetering on bankruptcy because they had no ability to pay. So what do you do? You've just frozen a city uh, in time because it, it doesn't have access to capital markets. If it doesn't have access to Chapter 9 to try to fix its problems, what happens? I'll tell you what happens. It keeps kicking the can down the road. It stops making infrastructure repairs. And sooner or later, it implodes. Mark, I'd like to pick up on one point that you made there that I think is a very important distinction between Chapter 9 and Chapter 11, which is that while Chapter 11 is available to every business, Chapter 9 is only available within those states that specifically authorize the municipalities to file bankruptcy. And not every state has done that. And uh, Samir, I might turn it back over to you because this is also a point underlying your earlier work on the fulcrum point, which is, you know, what are the state options? You know, states can be very active in this realm, or they can sometimes be very passive. But what, what can states do on their own if they haven't opted in to the bankruptcy option in Chapter 9? Yeah, and I think, you know, what I've tried to do in um, that 2015 article, uh, the new Fulcrum Point article, was to explain that what, what there has to be, I think, at the state level is some, you know, material threat to uh, adjust these obligations. And really the goal is not to rely on that power, but to get stakeholders to the table and then have a sort of a consensual agreement formulated. So one thing that, I think the contracts clause comes up a lot, and I tried to address it in that 2015 article, and I think um, you know, many see the contracts clause as this absolute prohibition. And you know, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that assessment, um, especially if you look at the historical record surrounding the ratification of the contracts clause, you can see that the states made it very clear that, yes, there's this new clause being introduced, but it's always subject to our police power, the state's ability to protect its residents in times of emergency. So um, that, was the, that was the context for the ratification of the clause. And, and I, I like this line, and the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And I think the judiciary has really accepted that argument. So you know, looking at the judiciary and how they've interpreted the contract clause, you can see that um, there's some they coalesced around key tenants, and it comes from this old case in 1934 called Blaisdell, a Supreme Court case. And basically the court said what I've already touched on briefly, which is that the contract clause is not an absolute prohibition on modification. Um, you know, certain minor modifications don't even implicate the clause. And in times of emergency, certain you know, modifications are acceptable. So now Blaisdell has been cut back by you know, subsequent Supreme Court um, rulings, but even you know, as of late, uh, the court has still accepted this premise from Blaisdell, that the contract clause is not an absolute prohibition. And we see this really resonate in the, on the circuit level, because through the Fourth Circuit, the Second Circuit, and the First Circuit, we have a number of opinions where the court has um, permitted municipalities and states to make temporary adjustments to especially collective bargaining agreements in times of emergency, fiscal emergencies. And they've almost treated it as, well, of course, if the state legislature identifies an emergency and then takes measured action to address that emergency, 
then they have the power to do so, contract clause notwithstanding. So that's sort of been my premise. Now, once again, the contract clause is certainly a limitation for what can be done at the state law level, but there is enough leeway there where state officials can convince stakeholders to come to the negotiating table and make concessions. Because if those concessions are aren't made, they can argue, look, we have the power to make adjustments unilaterally. And if you buttress that with an option to file for chapter nine, where we, we know the contract clause does not restrict contract modification, then that leads to, I think, a framework where cities and counties really have meaningful options. And that's really, I think, my objective. Now, Mark, in your experience with with Californian cities, right? California has authorized municipalities to file bankruptcy. How important is that threat? You know, Samir says just the, the ability to have bankruptcy option available, even if never invoked, may be a very powerful tool in renegotiating with creditors. What, what has been your experience with California cities in financial distress? Well, first off, I, I agree with Samir on that point. I, I'm not quite as optimistic about the contract clause as he is, because the cases of which I'm aware all deal with emergencies, which is what he talked about. And the problem that at least California cities are facing, and certainly Illinois and its various subdivisions are facing, are long-term pension issues. So they're hardly emergencies. They should catch no one by surprise. You know, the Puerto Rico case from the uh, from that 2011, the United Automobile and Aerospace Workers case, was dismissed on pleading grounds, but it, it, it stressed emergencies. So, yeah, maybe for the short term, that's a kind of the contract clause is a fix, but I don't see it as a long term fix. I think what you need is is bankruptcy. Uh, or you need the Supreme Court uh, to say that the contract clause is broader than we thought it was, although after Puerto Rico versus Franklin, I, I'm not so sure it's going to go there. But turning to California, uh, after the uh, the bankruptcy court then affirmed by the district court in Vallejo ruled that collective bargaining agreements could be rejected. California labor went to the California legislature where it has a big voice and ultimately obtained passage of what was called Assembly Bill 506, which is Government Code Section 53760, I believe. And what that required, well, first off, prior law was if you're a California municipality, you can file bankruptcy. Uh, about as short and sweet as that, and very similar to the same law in Missouri. Basically, if you're eligible for bankruptcy and you want to file, go ahead. The state, the state's all behind you. Now in California, you have to go through the, as a result of AB 506, you have to go through either a 60 to 90 day mediation period, or have a, a true fiscal emergency, uh, which I think is kind of hard to find. And in Stockton, we didn't have a true fiscal emergency. The city knew it was in trouble. It knew it for a while and went ahead and went to the negotiation route. San Bernardino, which just emerged from bankruptcy, was about to after four and a half years, one day woke up and realized it was insolvent and used the fiscal emergency uh, emergency off-ramp from the statute. But I, I think mediation is good, and of course, any good bankruptcy lawyer wants to keep his or her clients out of bankruptcy rather than in bankruptcy. I read a little book with my partner, John Knox, about six, seven years ago, and what we said was bankruptcy is always the worst option until it's the only option. <laughs> so of course you want to stay out if at all possible. Here's the problem that you face in negotiating your way out of bankruptcy. First off, the state may not be any better qualified to fix the problem than the local government is. I mean, look how mismanaged Illinois is. 
and plus you've got all the DNR, the Democrat Republican issues at the state level, which you don't have at least in California at the local level because everyone's an independent and you're not elected by party. So you've got all these political issues inserted that you don't have at the local level, at least in California. But secondly, the biggest problem facing California cities today generally is not capital market debt. It's labor issues. It's collective bargaining agreements, it's OPEB, and it's pensions. And when I was fighting AB 506 on a pro bono basis on behalf of the League of California Cities, I argued with the, the sponsor of the bill, who was very well-intentioned, I'll say, that, you know, how can you solve the pension problem outside of bankruptcy? How can you solve uh, 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 an OPEB problem where retirees, remember, are no longer members of the union once they retire? How do you solve that outside of bankruptcy? You can't have a majority vote like you can in bankruptcy. You can't have a majority vote on a pension issue outside of bankruptcy because everyone has to agree or there's no deal. So that's why negotiation is great and it can bring capital market creditors to the table, but ultimately in the stock in AB 506 negotiation, which went for 90 days under the auspices of Ralph Nady, who everyone should know is one of the all-time great bankruptcy lawyers and people, uh, we were able to resolve labor issues pretty well. The union got it and eight of the nine unions made deals right away and the ninth one made a deal shortly after the mediation was over. But we couldn't make any progress with capital market creditors because we couldn't make any progress with the OPEB, which again, no, total over $500 million. So while I'm a believer in mediation, I think when you've got these big issues, I don't see how you can do it. Finally, you know, look at Detroit. How could you possibly, without the supervision of the bankruptcy court and the iron fist of Judge Rhodes, be able to negotiate agreements with all parties outside of bankruptcy? I, I just don't see it being done. I see it's worth a try, but I just don't see it being done. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement, and that's why I still think that you know Chapter Nine is, I think, optimal for truly distressed um, cities like Detroit. Uh, I think what I'm proposing is are it's for those states that at an earlier stage of deterioration um, that they are identified by their state because of the monitoring procedure that I uh, propose, and then they're shepherded into this process. Um, I think those states and sorry, those cities and counties, they could benefit from this early intervention and rely on this negotiation model. But you're right, for those that are far gone, like Chicago, for example, they they need chapter nine. There is no other option for them at any level. And I, I definitely can see that. Well, but let me to really one one point. It's nothing is as important in the mediation negotiation process or the chapter nine process as having your arms around the numbers and the data. And I was very lucky in that Valero and Stockton had really good finance staff. So even though the unions contested in Valero and the uh, capital market creditors contested in Stockton, it became pretty clear right away to everyone once we got the numbers out that the city had control of its numbers. The numbers were horrible, you understand, but at least the city had control of them. San Bernardino took so long in part because the city had no control of its numbers. It just didn't know what it had and what it didn't have. So the idea of having some sort of a state organization or state officer to come in and control the numbers and take over the books and records and make sense out of them, I'm all for. I don't know how the local governments would like it because it takes away some of their power, but having realistic understanding of what the numbers are, to me, is just helps the process immensely for everybody. That makes sense. And that idea of bankruptcy serving that verification function is, com is something that we 
take for granted, I think, in the Chapter 11 world. Um, and in theory, should be available under Chapter 9, yet at sort of the crux of Samir's research is this obstacle that most states have simply not opted in. So I want to ask you both, and although you, you have some minor disagreements about what the options are outside of Chapter 9, you both seem to agree that having the Chapter 9 option, at the very least having the option, would be very valuable. Why don't we see more states moving to authorize Chapter 9 filings? Samir, would you like to... You, you started with this idea of the paralysis justification. Yeah, and I, I think Mark may maybe a little bit more versed in this than, than I am, but that's, some, that's certainly one argument that I've seen a lot of, this idea that um, access to the credit markets will be hampered, and that, of course, could be disastrous. Uh, there's also other factors involved uh, that work against it, and I think what I think a lot of academics are trying to do is march through that and try to knock down each obstacle, hoping to clear a path. But obviously, as Mark already acknowledged, with um, you have a lot of state legislatures that are split. There's a lot of hostility. There's not a lot of necessarily, um, you know, working towards the common goal. And, and I imagine those are big barriers as well. Yeah, and I think Mark, again, once you interject Democrat Republican politics, uh, it complicates things. And I don't blame either party for that. That's just the way the system works. Uh, look what's going on in Illinois, where you've got the downstate Republicans and the upstate Democrats, and you know a legislature that hasn't authorized Chapter Nine filings for uh, the Chicago School District or the city, which which may well need both of them need it, but it's it's mired in politics. In other states too, the there is more ability for local governments to raise taxes. Here in California, because of Prop 13 and Prop 218 that the voters in their infinite wisdom passed years ago. It's very difficult to raise property taxes or sales taxes. In order to raise uh, sales taxes that would just go into the general fund to be used however the, the governing body wants, you need a vote of 50% plus one of the people. But if you want uh, the money to be directed in a specific way, for example, we want the money to go to pay police salaries only, you need a two-thirds vote. And it's difficult to get those. It would be far easier if you're in a state where the local city council can just say, sorry, we're raising taxes. Uh, I realize there's political consequences, but you don't have to go to a vote of the people. Votes of the people are difficult. They're very expensive. They don't happen all the time. In California, if you do it other than during a general election, it's very expensive for a local government. So again, it may be easier to fix the problems in states where you can raise taxes more quickly. Yeah, and Drew, just a little bit of context. You know, we I wrote an article in 2014 proposing that Oregon allows their would allow their southern cities to file for Chapter 9. And um, you know, my co-author went before the state legislature and tried to make the argument. And the, the reception he received was quite hostile from all sides of the aisle. Um, and there is still this perception that, which I think has evaporated in, in the corporate world, uh, but it's certainly outside of that, there's this perception that bankruptcy is still failure. Um, it is sort of a, the, truly the last resort, but it's not even a meaningful option to many. That it's, it's just um, uh, sort of a liquidation type of thing where there's no rehabilitation, there's no prospect of rehabilitation, and they don't want to necessarily um, allow cities to go down that path. They want to try to solve their problems in-house. So there's still that resistance as well. Well, I couldn't agree more. 
Look, it's not a badge of honor to file bankruptcy, and I remember having counseling sessions with the members of the Vallejo City Council just predicting what was likely going to happen. You know, the, the name of the city is going to be on everyone's lips, not necessarily in the way you like. Vallejo is the bankrupt city. And it, it's, it's a very tough pill to swallow, and I can see why a state would ride its high horse and say, we don't want our cities in bankruptcy. But again, I always consider, as someone down at the trenches, What's the alternative? Again, what was the alternative for Stockton or Vallejo or Detroit when they, they couldn't raise any new capital? There's just nothing left to give. There's no cash flows you could pledge. You can't, in California, you can't pledge a park uh, to satisfy a debt. And there's no assets of any value to sell. Uh, Stockton doesn't have anything like the Detroit Art Institute, or it doesn't have backers like Detroit did. So what do you do? You just you just pass out and say, King's X, I give up, uh, and start the death spiral so people move out and nobody pays property taxes. What you've got then is Flint, Michigan. So, yeah. But it's just hard It's hard for legislators to say, you know, to stand on the political soapbox and say, I'm not going to have my cities file bankruptcy. I will tell you, and I can tell you this because this is public knowledge, in both, and particularly in Vallejo, the city reached out to its elective representatives, its state state senator and its assembly representative to try to get them to intercede with the state and get us some money so we wouldn't have to file bankruptcy. And that just went nowhere in part, and I can't I can understand the reason the state said, well if we bail you out, we have to bail everybody out. You spent wisely yeah. on your labor contract, so you don't have to suffer for it yourself. Yeah. I think states are no longer the implicit guarantors of these debts. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the provisions of AB 506 specifically points out that the state has no financial responsibility by the passage of the statute. <laughs> well, I appreciate that the obstacles to Chapter 9 are very are nuanced, and there are many of them. And uh, I appreciate, Professor Parikh, that your work in this field, at the very least, is taking down one of those obstacles, I hope this misunderstanding of bankruptcy as raising the cost of credit. This is clearly a very important and timely topic, one which we could and should continue to discuss and think about, but that is about all the time we have for this program. I want to thank you both, Professor Parikh and, and Mark, for taking the time to talk with us today to share your thoughts and your insights. Uh, this program and nearly 200 other podcasts are available in the ABI online newsroom. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson, and thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. 